This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with the final installment in our feature of amazing charitable organizations in Israel. We will next transition to the next sub-series, so stay tuned for that. This particular interview with Joseph Gitler of Leket, Israel, actually was not face-to-face on my Israel trip, but we did it right before, remotely, as many of my other interviews are conducted. But it fits beautifully right into the theme of the Israel trip as a whole, and to this particular mini-series specifically. I wanted to release this now, not only as the cap of the mini-series, but also timing it right before and during the holidays. We're about to begin Sukkot at sundown on the day that this is being released. And for those hearing it in real time, I would urge you to participate, contribute to Leket, to get involved. If you're in Israel, either living there or visiting for the holiday, a wonderful opportunity to go and volunteer as a picker in the fields or a packer in the warehouse or as a financial supporter. So without further ado, enjoy this week's episode. We are here with Joseph Gitler, the founder of Leket. Leket is an organization close to my heart. I'll maybe talk about it a little later. My, my daughter did a special uh, bat mitzvah project there. Uh, but in any event, how are you, Joseph? I'm great. Talking to you from Israel. I'm not usually here in July, but uh, life changes, and uh, I'm going to be here for Tisha B'Av for the first time in many years. Where in Israel exactly are you? I'm sitting in my bedroom in Ranana. Beautiful. So, Joseph, obviously, uh, from the accent, I think it's quite clear that uh, you're not a native Israeli, a native Sabra. Uh, I'm sorry to tell you. Uh, so- By the way, you should know when I when I... I tried that shtick recently where I tried to make believe I was in Washington and I was speaking to school kids and I tried to do the, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and one of the Israeli teachers who lives there and teaches the kids said, your accent in Hebrew is bad and your accent in English as an Israeli is also bad. So. <laughs> Worst of both worlds. Uh, <laughs> so Joseph, where, where actually are you from and uh, tell us a little bit about your early life, your childhood. Sure. I grew up uh, in Washington Heights till I was 15, northern Manhattan. And when I was 15, my parents moved to Teaneck. Um, my late father, David, was an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, really built himself up uh, on his own from nothing. And my mother also grew up in Manhattan. My parents both did. And I'm one of four brothers. I'm married to my wife, Leela, from Toronto, just walked into the room and uh, tells me she's not going to make any noise. See? <laughs> and we are also blessed with five children and very traditional, modern, Orthodox Jewish upbringing. Yeshiva University, Yeshiva University High School, MTA, some know it. Bnei Akiva, Bnei, uh, different, different uh, summer camps that I was privileged to go to. I met my wife when we were 15, and we've been together for a long time. <laughs> we won't ask how many years that is. Uh, but... Uh, 23 years of marriage coming up in November. There you go. Beautiful. Proud to say. Wonderful. So growing up, I would imagine, given the sort of the religious Zionist schools that you were a part of and B'nai Akiva, which of course is a 
uh, religious Zionist youth movement, I would imagine that Israel was a very central part of your identity. Would that be accurate? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it depends on the camp, but certainly in, uh, you know, once I made it to Camp Moshavah, that was very central uh, for my parents. I was my mother for many years in the Mariah School of Englewood, ran the Israeli Day Parade huh. uh, entry. So we felt it there. And I even remember when I switched to that school um, and my father had been uh, an Israeli dancer in his youth, which I still can't imagine <laughs> after all these years. But we, you know, my parents, I remember when I switched schools, uh, my Hebrew was subpar, it was subpar after I switched schools also. And my parents covered the entire house with translations. Whatever they could in the house, they labeled with how you call it in Hebrew. Wow. Try to get us ready. So yeah, it was a pretty Sioni house. And certainly even my dad was, days before we were supposed to leave to Israel for my father to go to medical school there, he was accepted to Einstein Medical School. Oh, wow. And then they never ended up going. So we were, we were pretty close to ending up either for the short term or long term in Israel. Yeah. I didn't know that. I was uh, maybe three or four years old. I guess I would have figured it out eventually. <laughs> you would have gotten the memo. <laughs> Did you visit Israel often as a child? Not, you know, I, my first trip was when I was seven. And after that, we came more often, whether it was for a cousin's bar mitzvah, but it, we, you know, we just, we didn't have that kind of lifestyle where we could come every year. I mean, people today is totally different, but even then it was very rare for people to come more than once every few years. And we certainly did not have the ability to do that. Right. Right. So, but once, once we had the ability, then we came far often, but <laughs> did I visit often? My parents did send me twice to summer camp in Israel once when I was 13 and once when I was 15. So I, I did get to spend a fair bit of time and then two years in yeshiva right. in Israel. So I did spend a considerable amount of time, if I think about it. Did you have designs early on on making Aliyah? Was that, was that something that you were you know, committed to doing from an early age, or is it something that developed later? I think it developed in high school, and certainly after my summer in Israel, uh, when I was going to 11th grade, when I met my wife, uh, it was certainly something that for her was definite. I mean, she tried to even stay for college, but her parents uh, quashed that. Um, so for us, it was, a, it was more of how long will it take us? But we weren't, you know, I always tell people in the ass, you know, we weren't like the uber Zionist types who were walking around New York in their tilboshet, which is what the Bnei Akiva kids right. wear. We were just, we knew we were going to go and we didn't have to make a big deal out of it. And in fact, we didn't make a big deal out of it because I knew as proud as my parents would be, it would be very hard for them. So sort of slipped it into a conversation at some point. Right. right. Not, not too far from when we were leaving. <laughs> so, oh, by the way, uh, tomorrow. We're <laughs> and that's my only regret. You know, I have no regrets living here. My only regret is, you know, leaving, leaving my parents, especially. Yeah. That's, there. That's it's, you know, yeah, that's the hard one. Difficult for anyone. So, so when did you actually go? I mean, you, you said you went to Yeshiva University for college. I guess, what did you study there? And did you start building a life in America or did you come to, uh, to Israel right, right away? No, so we, we lived in Riverdale, New York for five years and we had a wonderful life, wonderful place. We're very happy there. But we made a decision. You go young or you get too, too caught up. And America's great. I've, you know, I'm not, I've never, there's zero reason outside of, I mean, there are reasons, but. You can live very well as a Jew, uh, 
very well in the United States. Sometimes we talk about, in many ways, it can be easier um, if you're trying to bring your children up religious. Mm-hmm. It can be easier often in the U.S. than here for a variety of reasons. Why, why, decided would you, why would you say that? You know, I think, I think some, there's an aspect of I've, I'm living the dream. I made it to Israel, so I'm here. So I don't need to focus as much on that aspect. Mm-hmm. That's number one. And number two, I think here, you're, you know, we're, we're the majority. We're part of the culture. And every, you know, not everyone, but everyone's Jewish. And why shouldn't I be on the MTV dating show in Hebrew? And I have no problem with those things. I'm very liberal. But there's just a lot of parts of the culture that Jews and Orthodox Jews, certainly in America, are just not. They're just not there. You know, I, I know once in a while you'll hear about the religious kid on The Voice or this or that, but it's so rare. And here it's every single TV show and radio show and whatever it be. So you're part of the dominant culture. And right. so it's you know, very attractive. And that's that fusion of the army. Right. The army is a challenging place to be religious. And we see it. We see it. I mean, I see it every day. Kids who've gone to the army and. Uh, are not religious anymore. So it's, it's challenging, but then, and the people probably, excuse me, choose not to come because of that fear. But so few come anyway, so let's not give any excuses. I mean, it is kind of a tragic irony that someone could move to Israel only to struggle more religiously. Um, But I do hear that there's sort of a fusion there of culture and religion that can become confusing for people um, and blend together things that maybe don't necessarily belong together and otherwise wouldn't be. Um, so in any event, what, what were you doing in America and, and did you continue doing that in Israel? So I went to law school in America. I worked for a year and then we made Aliyah. And I went to work in a technology company here. I did that for a couple of years and then really at the height of the Intifada um, with Israel's, Israel's poverty rate growing and Israel's economy changing for the good, I would say, but as we know from those of us who live in capitalist societies, what's good for most always leaves some people behind. And Israel has its own unique complications that other countries don't have. But when we look at poverty statistics in the OECD, um, Israel's are pretty staggering and em- I don't want to say embarrassing, but hard to stomach for the Jewish Zionist community that and we created our country after thousands of years, and there's still so many people here struggling to make ends meet, whatever the reasons are. Okay, you know, and certainly Leket, which is the organization I founded, uh, we don't, we're not in the judgment game. Whatever my personal opinions are, I leave aside, and what we focus our energies on is figuring out ways to feed needy Israelis, whomever and wherever they are, in whatever communities they're from, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. But we're looking for leading organizations to serve with the food that we're able to get our hands on. So it sounds like you were just kind of a regular guy working in a tech firm and you just saw with your own eyes, I guess, you, you encountered this poverty that was there and, and, and what? I mean, you just decided I'm going to start an organization. You know, I'm sure many people, you know, I, I often ask this question, but many people see the same Phenomena, yep. right? We, we all observe the same kind of inputs from the world around us. Very few people react in some dramatic fashion to those realities around them. 
what galvanized you to do something? Was there something particular that you saw? Was there a moment that you met somebody? Like what happened? I think, and that's a question I, I, we, you know, I've been getting asked for many years. I think it was just a mix of factors from timing to having the opportunity, the, time, the timing and time, okay, being able to uh, take some time to look into it. Not everyone has that ability uh, or opportunity. Being fortunate that I honed in on this particular issue, which, by the way, is an issue everyone's been talking about, time immemorial. It's not, you know, it's in the Bible. I mean, it's, it's in the book of Ruth. It's, it's all over. Uh, it's multiple commandments in the Bible on both sides, from helping the poor to not wasting. And it was, to this day, a shock that as I investigated, you know, there was nothing like a city harvest for those New Yorkers who are listening or a, a Chicago food depository. Just did there, there were many hundreds, thousands of organizations in Israel feeding the poor. But most of them were raising money to buy food, which is certainly noble and makes sense. Because what Leica does is logistically extremely complicated. But what was surprising is there was no food bank. There was no organization. And, you know, to the, just to this day, I always am amazed that Israel, which is the land, I call it the land of a thousand amutot, which is nonprofit organizations in Hebrew, that this vital, basic piece, which exists everywhere, did not exist in Israel. I just, to this day, I can't... Uh, Get over that, just so surprising. And so, you know, everything went together. There was a concept and no one was filling those shoes and opportunity and, and responsiveness almost immediately from food donors. You know, when you, people are going to take the food, that's not a problem. Recipients, you're giving away something for free, whether it be money, food, clothing, someone's going to take it. That's not an issue. The issue becomes who to give it to. That's a bigger challenge. But the knowing whether people would give the food free of charge uh, without, uh, you know, $500 million worth of insurance um, was my big question. And Israelis answered that with incredible support very quickly. You know, not the kind of responses I expected, which were, what's my legal liability? What kind of tax deduction would I get? It was just, how can we help? And so that, you know, when, when you have an idea and then, the responsiveness is so immediate and so outstanding. So uh, you run. That's, you know, that's the way humans are. You run with the idea. doesn't matter what it is. Now, how, did you, were you familiar? It sounds like you were. How familiar were you with this kind of a food bank model? And I want to get into a little bit more to, to understand exactly how it functions. But no, nothing, nothing. But you didn't know anything about it before moving to Israel? Like, was it something you had seen in New York, something you'd seen elsewhere? Uh, like I'm sure, I, you know, it's a long time ago already, and my memory is not what it was. My memory was never that good, but I would say I knew about this issue minimally before starting. Like, I knew there's organizations that collect excess food because, I mean, you just know those. It's something that you just sort of know about, as if you're educated, but I was not in any way an expert. I would argue I'm still not an expert. I've just, uh, I, we do what we do. You know, people, people always call me with agricultural questions. I say to them, I don't know anything about agriculture. Zero. I know that farmers waste a lot of crops. I know the reasons they do. And I've figured out 
how to get in touch with them and convince them to give those to the poor rather than letting them go to waste. <laughs> That's what I know. Okay. So I'm very focused on what we do and, uh, you know, it'd be nice if I knew something about it. We have on our terrace a, a little, um, you know, a little planter with some spices in them. And the, what I know about them is when my wife asked me once in a blue moon, go pick this. And I have to say to her, what, which one is that? What does it look like? <laughs> right. Cause there's 10 different spices. I don't know. I don't know anything about that. That's not my, that's not my gig, but you know what? And people ask me, how did you learn how to fundraise? Let's be honest. Take any profession. Okay. Law, medicine, you name it. Accounting. You learn, you learn everything on the job. Okay. And if it's the right fit, then hopefully you're going to succeed in it. That's what it is. So this was a good fit for me and for my personality. Cause I like to talk. <laughs> Most of what I do is talk. How did you learn about this industry? Again, you had this kind of epiphany that food bank is missing in Israel. Did you go about researching the topic, learning about it from other countries? What did you do to, to get yourself up to speed to figure out before you even started? Like, okay, what do I do to launch this process? So a lot of time, you know, uh, God bless the internet. I, I can't even imagine what I would have done without it. I spent yeah, days, weeks, months reading, going to the websites of every organization like this in the world, starting conversations with them, conference, voice call, you know, calls, visits. Uh, to, to, I went to Toronto, I went to New York, Washington, D.C. It's a sharing world. That's the beauty of the world that I'm in. Total sharing world. And so everyone was happy to share any information. I mean, there was no, you know, it's kind of like what I say today. There's no, nothing you can't ask me about like it that I won't answer. I prefer not to share our donor lists <laughs> with you because I think that's, I think that's not something that donors uh, appreciate. Right. You know, but, but if you were a donor and you said, to me, you know, when someone says to me, what are your top 10 donations? I like to tell them because hopefully I'm getting them in that frame of mind. Yeah, <laughs> so, sure. so then I'll do it. But in general, um, you know, that's why we, as an example, you won't really see, you'll see a lot of organizations print these annual reports and things like that. And they'll put all their donors' names and they'll put pictures of all the, the, the parlor evenings they had and who was there. And I say, why? Like, why do I want my donors to get any more hassle than they are already? Right. Okay. So, you know, it's a very, but, but the charity world is very sharing. And, and we've certainly, um, what's that term? Uh, passed, not passed it on. That, that people paid it, paid it forward. Right. We spend tons of time with other organizations, they visit us, we visit them. I'm on the board of something called the Global Food Bank Network, which works in developing countries to try to help them open food banks. So there's, um, there's a, it's really, and it's a beautiful, in that sense, it's such a nice world. It's not a competitive world, it's a sharing world. And the people who are competitive in this world, they're not long for it, it just doesn't. Uh, doesn't fit the culture of what you're doing. It doesn't feel like I look at our CEO, Giddy, who's you know, been a blessing for us. He came in from the business world and he was like, okay, who's our competition? Who are we going to attack? Uh, he was, I remember in Hebrew, he was telling, and I said to him, calm down. You know, this is all in Hebrew. Calm down, man. Like, there's a different world here, my friend. Right. Okay? Even in the fundraising world that people think is very competitive, you don't know who you're competing with. There's nothing like that. It's a very friendly world and that's a beautiful like that's why someone goes to the charity world my truck drivers say all the time the work we do is exactly the same as we did 
when we were delivering furniture, but we're earning probably less than they were before, not that much less, which is sad that we should be competitive with private industry. But they say at the end of the day, I go home and when my spouse says, what did you do? And I said, well, I delivered 2,000 tomatoes to this organization and I delivered 100 meals to this organization. It's the same work, but I go home feeling really good about the fact that I help people in need. So there's something really special about that. Wonderful. So Joseph, explain to me a little bit about exactly what this model is. In other words, throw around these words, food bank and sharing and, sure. and so forth. But how actually is it distinct from a typical charitable organization? Okay. What exactly is it? Right. So the way the food banking and food rescue world works is we are generally umbrella organizations. We don't feed the poor directly. That's a key item. So where are you calling from? Uh, Maryland. Let's take this as an example. Maryland. Okay. So you have, you know, the kosher food pantry in uh, Baltimore or in S- Silver Spring. Spring. I'm, inv- I'm involved with one. Yes. And we, we actually, Okay. So yeah. that would be a, cl- a, a kosher food pantry, a soup kitchen, a homeless shelter, uh, an after school club for kids. It's those kind of organizations, battered women's shelters. Those would be our clients. Okay. The way we, that's the way we view the world. This Olam, this world that I'm part of, that's the way we do things. We say these organizations are doing beautiful work, God's work, the hard work, dealing with the poor. We are here to support them. How do we support them? By figuring out who has excess food and then figuring out the logistics of that. So you have the Maryland Food Bank. Okay. You have DC Central Kitchen. You have famous, famous, massive mega organizations. In New York, you have City Harvest. You have the New York Food Bank. All these organizations, everyone has nuances and is different and the type of food and the food mix, but essentially that's the model, and that's the model we adopted. So Leket today is an organization that distributes food to about 210 different charities throughout Israel, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. We work all over the country, from Elat to Metula, and we distribute food, which for us is only in two areas. We made the decision to be a 100% healthy organization, not because we have a problem with people eating junk food, but we have a budget and you give us money and I have to make choices. So I could pick up a truckload of cola, which again, I drink cola, or a truckload of tomatoes. And so we made the decision for the poor that we think it's more important to deliver them the tomatoes. So we only work in agriculture, distributing produce, and cooked excess meals from Army, corporate cafeterias, hotels, events, etc. That's what we do. We just do it in massive numbers. This year, we should be about 45 million pounds of fruits and vegetables, which is staggering, and about 3 million cooked meals. Now, I would imagine, since you're in those particular areas, those are both areas that are dealing with perishables, uh, which I would imagine complicates your task much more than if you just picked up a big truckload of cola or potato chips or something like that. So how Correct. That... We like it complicated. <laughs> so, so take me through kind of the, the process or the workflow. Um, I, I guess you're sourcing farmers or you're sourcing primary uh, individuals or caterers or whatever, whatever the sources are. You're finding these, these outlets and then you're somehow moving them from point A to B to C. So take me through that, how that works. Correct. So it happened. So it happens in a lot of different ways. And let me reiterate, this is not, 
although they may think of themselves as philanthropists, this is really partnership because what we want from them and we make it very clear is only stuff that they couldn't sell, reuse. That's what we want, okay? Philanthropy for Leket, to run Leket, that comes from financial donors and from the government. But, you know, a typical story could be uh, a farmer. Yeah, I'll give you some real-life stories that have happened recently, so they're in my head. We had a call, and most of it comes from us calling. We have basically the phone number of every farmer and packing house in the country. So we're working at the farming and packing house level, much less at the retail level, because we just find that it's bigger bulk. It's a better use of our time. Sure. So uh, we got a call recently from a, from a farmer, and he said, I have 400 tons of potatoes still from last year's crop that I didn't sell. They've been stored in refrigeration. I was hoping to sell them. I didn't succeed. The new crop is in. Okay. And I get a better price for the new crop. I need these out of my warehouse. They're yours. Free of charge. We don't pay for anything. 400 tons of potatoes. Okay. That was a story. Um, I was in our warehouse today. We had maybe 50 tons of perfectly healthy edible cucumbers. They all looked funny. And my son came home with one. Probably left in the car, actually. <laughs> it was just, a, they looked like a, a, a cucumber that had given birth and had a sack like a marsupial to hold the other cucumber in. Okay? <laughs> like a kangaroo cucumber. That's what it looked like. So there's nothing wrong with it, but no one will ever buy it in the store because you think it's from the, you know, the first episode of The Simpsons where there's the three-eyed fish in the <laughs> nuclear uh, lake. So, and there's nothing wrong. So we, we've been socialized. Okay, so... Those things happen all the time. Market price, acts of God. And so either we are collecting it picked already from a packing house, collecting it picked already from a, uh, from a farmer, picking it ourselves with tens of thousands of volunteers, or we have our own team of Israeli Arab women who work for Leket as paid pickers. So we send them out to the field, they pick it, and then one of our trucks will come and pick it up. And it's a lot of logistics and a lot of moving parts and a lot of crates. And it's darn complicated, and that's why no one else wants to do it. But the bang for the buck is tremendous. Every dollar we spend on that project brings in about $5 worth of fruits and vegetables. So it's a no-brainer. You're rescuing food. You're helping the environment. You're utilizing a lot of volunteerism. We're paying people to make you. We're getting a living, and we're feeding the poor at the same time, which is awesome. So it's such a beautiful concept. Uh, the flip side is the cooked food, and the cooked food happens in two ways. Either in our, it happens actually in three ways. One is volunteers who go out at night only in their cars and pick up excess food from catering events. And that's how that gets started. That's how I started in my, in my wife's car, which became my car pretty quickly <laughs> after many, many mishaps. And she is nice enough here, whenever I mention her name, to look and raise her eyebrows. <laughs> Thank her for that. <laughs> She's had, you know, she's heard a lot of this stuff so many times. I'm sure. The only person who's heard more than her is me. Okay, <laughs> let's feel bad for me. She could probably do it for you. And, no, you know, I say we, we've, we, you know, we've had different people who've worked with us in fundraising, whether in the U.S. or Israel, and often they would come to different events that we'd have, and um, I would always start out by saying, "Guys, I'm really sorry. I'm pretty much a broken record. I'll try to come up with something different, really, because it's just you've you've heard me speak twenty times." At this point, you know, what else do I have to say? That's, you know, that's the life of someone who is just shilling for the same thing year after yeah. year after year. So, uh, you know, so cook food is either, it's volunteers, hundreds of them every week, picking up from catered events, especially, you know, the in Israel, 70 or something percent of the weddings happen between Lag Boomer and Rosh Hashanah. 
So it's a crazy busy time, like not maybe this past week, uh, but starting on Monday, it's going to be insane every night for our volunteers and staff. And then during the day, we have refrigerated trucks that are going to corporate cafeterias and army bases and hotels, again, picking up excess food. It's something always everyone who comes to Tisdale says, oh, my God, what do they do with the extra food in my from breakfast? And so the answer is that's what we do. We are there. You won't see us. We're coming to the kitchen in minus two, which you may not ever see, but that's exactly why like it exists. And then a lot of it gets distributed directly. Some of it comes back to our warehouse for repackaging. And eventually it all ends up at these charities as quickly as humanly possible. Do you have, do you freeze a lot of things or, or I mean, because you're turning around. No, we freeze a little, we, we freeze a little bit of the cooked food. The fruits and vegetables we distribute. And then again, the charities do with it what they do. Some charities cook. Some charities are delivering to the home. So they do with it what they do. And we, you know, we keep on top of them. We want to know that the food is being utilized well, because obviously it would be a shame if what we collected and worked so hard to get our hands on, they were then wasting. Right. I would, I would imagine that each package or what whatnot is, is marked with its uh, whatever respective kosher certification it has. So look, fruits and vegetables are kosher. As you know, they're kosher ipso facto. Is that how you say it? Right? They're kosher outside of the specific laws of tithing and orla and all these things, which I don't know if you want me to get into. But assuming all those things have been followed, then everything is kosher. So there's no really kosher certification on our fruits and vegetables. Organizations may ask us, has master, has tithing been done on this? If it's from a tree, you know, is this from a, a, a reputable farmer, etc. And so those things we know with everyone we work with. And when it comes to the cooked food, so again, we may not label it because it's just maybe not a good use of our time, but the organizations who we're distributing it to know this comes from the army and all food in the army is from the rabbinate. And again, if that's not good enough for their particular agency, there's really nothing we can do about it. Right. Um, it's interesting, you know, um, thankfully, I say at this point, I'm a little older and a little wiser. It says something about the poverty in the country when a poverty organization can say this isn't kosher enough for my clientele. Because that means that we, of course, are talking about Western rich person poverty, rich country poverty. Right. No one's starving. Right, you know, you know the law better than I do, but as I always like to say, we are commanded as Jews to not starve to death. Commanded. You have no right that it violates you're starving, you know, it's very nice when you hear stories of people who wouldn't eat this or that in the most horrible conditions and I don't take anything away from them. You know, but Jewish law is very clear about what we're allowed to do in those situations and it's you can eat whatever you need to to stay alive. So I used to get annoyed and upset in the beginning. How could how could this organization say that they won't take this whatever for their poor people who gives them the right? But now I say, okay, if I had trouble giving it away to other poor people that I might still be upset, how have I? I dream of the day when we have trouble giving away the food. How were you able to grow this from what began as you just, you know, schlepping around in your wife's slash your car to then kind of scaling this up to obviously a remarkable degree of millions of pounds of 
and millions of meals. And how, how did that evolution take place? So um, it just took off fast. People liked what we were doing. Almost everyone, I'm not talking about financially here. Almost every food donor we would talk to would say, we've been waiting for something like this. And actually, to give credit to, the, to Maryland, I was at a conference of an organization. In those days, it was called America's Second Harvest. Today it's called Feeding America, which is the umbrella of the umbrella. And I came for a conference at the harbor front there. And a pastor from Virginia sought me out and said, are you the guy collecting food in the Holy Land? And I said, yes. He said, are you collecting fruits and vegetables? You have to do that. It's in the Bible, you know. And I know there's so much waste of fruits and vegetables in the Holy Land. Wow. And so I knew it also. I just hadn't gotten to it yet. But it energized me. And so when I came back, I just started. It was so easy. I mean, like, Leket is really just a tale of, I'll say it in Hebrew, and I'll say it in like, mitzvah, gorerit mitzvah, just one mitzvah following another one. And just ev almost everything we tried over the years worked. And people were excited about it. And no one was really doing it. And thankfully, our donor base came along with us. And it's just really mostly been rolling and throwing out business plans and not being too, we're not one of these very strict organizations. I mean, we obviously abide by our approved budget and things like that, but we're quite um, flexible, flexible. And it's just worked for us. And we've had great leadership, I think. Uh, staff leadership and some great board leadership in Israel. And there was no genius behind any of this. <laughs> I promise. It was just right place, right time, right concept, well executed, but with a lot more to do. We, we still estimate that we collect less than 10% of what is wasted and available. There are things that are wasted that are just not fit for human eating anymore. That's things just go bad at some point. There's uh -huh. so much. At what point did you have to start actually fundraising? Because obviously, while the service itself is, so to speak, free, I mean, you're just taking a product that's being given for free and giving it to somebody else for free. I would imagine the expenses lie in terms of the, in some, some cases, the cultivation of those products, but also the transportation and sort of the infrastructure involved. So how quickly did you need to start fundraising? And immediately was that, was that a difficult <laughs> process what did you do to start to start that going i you know i was lucky i had some strong family support in the beginning and a friend who went to some members in the, in the shul uh said you know i don't want you to have to do it i'll do it for you wow. and then you know picked can up you some give me that guy's number <laughs> <laughs> for my own well, organization. My shul. Yeah, you know you picked up the low hang and then you know you start to get into it and research and there's some low hanging fruit um, foundations which like these kind of projects or foundations that like to help startups and you have a good story and uh, people came and we doubled our budget for the first almost 10 years every year wow. and then that became difficult but we still have tried to raise our budget five to ten percent every year since then and it's 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 a big operation I mean our budget is almost 15 million dollars this year Wow! it's a mega organization with 120 employees and paid employees, about 60,000 volunteers uh, this year. But as I said at the beginning, how much food we're distributing and the value of that food will probably be about, probably be about 200 million shekels, which is about 
55, 60 million, you know, depending on the exchange, 50, 55 million dollars uh, worth of food. So, and it, that's wholesale. Its retail impact is far greater than that. Wow. You said earlier that you are getting some government support. What percentage comes from the actual government? So it's growing. This year, probably about five, maybe about 6%. Which is, listen, it makes the government our biggest donor. I don't want to give them too much credit, though. They don't deserve it. But um, <laughs> that should grow. And look, and I, like everyone, my dream is that the government calls us tomorrow and says, we want to get into this and convinces us that they're going to do it well and takes it over. That would be fine. You know, that's, that's happened before. Really? Um, I don't see it happening in our field. We're just complicated. You know, but it's happened, for example, in, in a lot of school lunch programs in Israel that were being done independently and the government came in. So it's, it's a dream and a possibility. But other than that, you really are raising, responsible for raising, it sounds like, $14 million a year. Uh, yeah, don't, do you have to remind me of that? <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. So do you have an entire development team? Like, how are you managing that? Sure. We have, we have a development team. We have um, fundraising. We have an office in New Jersey, which is our American Friends of Lackett office. And it's, uh, you know, it's in a perfect world. Uh, you know, we'd have a couple of people who just support this whole thing, but that's just not the way it works. And I say that because, you know, we have a lot of very creative, smart people working for us who have to spend their time on fundraising, which is, again, it's okay. It's okay, but it's a, it's a challenge. I, I, it's the hardest part of what we do. As, as it is for every organization, I think. Um, explain the word leket and, and the, the title. Where did that come from? I mean, I know it's biblical, but can you give a little color to that and why you chose it? So I really wanted something that Israelis understood, and Israelis do know what the term means. Um, they just know it. Religious or secular. Uh, and something that, even though we are not a religious organization, we're not even a Jewish organization, we're an Israeli organization, um, I wanted something still that connected to, uh, you know, you could say to the Jewish faith, but, you know, Muslims and Christians also believe in the, in the Old Testament, as they call it. So something that connects to to you know the roots of of Western civilization and to what we believe in, and the name also means gleaning, which is what we are. We are the gleaners. That is who we are. So it represents what we do well, and certainly for non-Jews and a lot of diaspora Jews, uh, they don't know what it is. And so right away, it's a great way to get into a conversation. What does this thing mean? And Christians also for them, it's a very powerful name. Because for them, anything that connects the land and helping the poor in Israel, they love that. And evangelical Christians love Lackett. Are you getting a lot of support from them? So we've, we have a fair bit of support. I think by now, actually, I would have expected more. I don't maybe we're just not doing things right. But we have had, for example, we have our own farm. That was a dream of a pastor from Singapore. And he and his congregation gave us um, literally millions of dollars with the express purpose. So besides all our rescue activities, we have our own 10-acre, 40-dunum farm in Binyamina, which we use to smooth out times of the year or certain types of crops that we rarely get our hands on. Unbelievable. Just in wrapping up, Joseph, you mentioned the volunteerism, and I think I, I started this interview by saying that you know, my daughter on her bat mitzvah trip to Israel came and volunteered at Leket and was able to pick there, and that was a very meaningful part of her, of her trip, um, and she got a beautiful 
gift from a picture and, and everything. Tell me a little bit about the volunteer opportunities there, where they happen, uh, how somebody can, can get involved if they want either as an individual or as a group. And then finally, where could people just generally learn about the organization uh, online? Okay, so for, I'm going to say for overseas volunteers, which are going to be the primary people listening to this, there are really two great opportunities to help Leket in volunteering. Number one is picking in the fields when you come. You can come as individuals. You can come as groups. Uh, generally, the more the merrier. Um, we can usually host 50, 100, 200 people at a time. You, generally, it's Sunday to Thursdays. We can make an exception here or there for a Friday, but we like to give our staff time to breathe as well. During holidays, it's a little bit different, but we don't, we don't, we don't work on the Sabbath and we don't work on uh, Jewish holidays. And this is picking in your own uh, fields, or this is the all so the this and this happens. In a, I would say in a number of fields that that farmers or leket have are primarily given for charity, and one is in Rehovot, one is in Binyamina, and one is in Nahalal, which is near Afula. So it's a pretty nice range of where it is in the country. That's opportunity number one, and it's a wonderful thing to do, and we need all the help we can get. So certainly people should reach out to us and let us know when they're coming and join us. Number two is we have a project now with the government where we are packing every month 4,000 boxes of fruits and vegetables for the poor. The government has chosen who those are distributed to through our charitable partners. And so we need every about 12 to 15 days a month in our warehouse in Ranana, we need about uh, 100 to 150 people every day in our warehouse volunteering. So it's very intense, and we're always looking for people. So that's another project that people can come to do. I was there today. I was there yesterday with volunteers, volunteering, talking to people. In fact, I had two families from Baltimore, as an example, oh, wonderful. Uh, yesterday who were volunteering there, small world. And so people learn about Like It really easy, our website www.leket.org. Um, if you want to send me an email, my email is joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H, at leket.org. You know, if it's a question that's not really for me or for volunteering, I'll just pass you on to the appropriate person in the organization. And of course, everyone is more than welcome to join us as volunteers, to join us as supporters, Bar and Bar Mitzvah Project. We have many needs and many goals, and we want to feed more and more needy people and we can't do it with the help of friends throughout the world wonderful well joseph thank you so much for this incredible uh, initiative that you have and you should be blessed to be able to grow from the the 10 that you're currently recovering all the way to 100 recovery and all the way to the point where your efforts are exhausted and no longer even needed among the poor in israel joseph gitler leket thank you so so much Thank you. This was a wonderful opportunity, and I do. That is a blessing. We should please God in the Holy Land and not have anyone in need, and all the food that's going to waste, we should be able to ship to somewhere else where they need it. That would be a wonderful dream. So thank you so much for the time and the opportunity. Wishing all your listeners a wonderful day. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting 
patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.